everyone. Welcome to another episode of Think ID. My name is Pablo Lapatino. And I'm Williams Monier. And on today's episode, we have the luxury of having two very important special guests with us here today. We have Dr. Jennifer Cavedo, who's an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist, and Dr. Mohamed Raja, who is an infectious disease uh, fellow at Jackson Memorial Hospital. So Dr. Jennifer Cavedo is a born and raised Miami native. She completed, uh, she came to pharmacy school here in Nova Southeastern University and then went on to complete a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency at Florida Hospital in Orlando. After residency, she began working at the University of Miami, where she is currently the lead pharmacist for the antimicrobial stewardship program. And Dr. Mohamed Raja graduated from Gulf Medical University in the United Arab Emirates. He then completed his internal medicine residency at the University of Alabama and is currently in his second year of an infectious disease fellowship at the University of Miami, where he's also looking to pursue a subspecialty training in transplant infectious disease. So please give a warm welcome to our two guests. You guys say Thank hey. you. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hi, hi. So um, how would you like us to refer to you throughout the episode? You can call me Jenny. Jenny, okay. Yeah, just call me Mo. Mo, okay. Yeah, awesome. awesome. So just to get everyone familiar with the two different health systems that we have here today. So Dr. Cavedo is from the University of Miami and Dr. Raja is from Jackson Memorial Hospital. Could you guys give us a little insight as to what each of these healthcare systems consist of? So the University of Miami um, Hospital and Clinics is its own entity. It's separate from Jackson. We do share a lot of the medical residents and fellows. So Dr. Raja does, and I'll let him speak to that, but he does, that's where our collaboration comes into play because he does round at our facility in addition to Jackson. In terms of me as a pharmacist, I am strictly in the U-Health Tower, Mm. but I do collaborate um, our site, our Baskin Palmer, Sylvester, and the tower. So we have three different sites, and then I do collaborate with the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist from Sylvester as well, but my main um, my main site is at the tower. Perfect. Okay. All right. And for us, being part of the fellowship program, which is actually com- is combined between University of Miami and Jackson Memorial, so we round a lot at Jackson Memorial, but also at UMH, the tower, and also we also round at VA and Sylvester and oh, wow. um, other hospitals as well. Yeah. Very okay. cool. Cool, cool. So um, we're just going to get into a few questions to kind of help us and help the listeners know what it is, how the interprofessional team works in order to tackle ASP. Um, So our first question is, who's part of your antimicrobial stewardship program? So part of our antimicrobial stewardship program, we do have a lead physician and myself, I'm the lead pharmacist. So it's Dr. Castro. He's the physician that works closely with me. We also have microbiology, IT we have nursing as well as management. So those are the main members that we have as part of our stewardship program, and we collaborate on a monthly basis in our meetings. Okay. Perfect. So the next question would be, so what are the most common pharmacy slash medicine interventions that you guys deal with on a daily basis? So I think a lot of our interventions and our collaboration with the medical team is antibiotic de-escalations. Mm. So for example, if we have a patient on vancomycin for MRSA coverage, Cultures come back, MSSA, immediately we contact a medical team, whether it be on rounds, whether it be um, through a paging system, we go ahead and reach out to them and receive a de-escalation approval for MSSA, for example. Perfect. So those are just some examples on a daily basis yeah. that we... And also another important one would be drug interactions. Mm-hmm. If they're on certain medications that interact with the ideal antibiotic, then we have to come up with this suitable alternative mm-hmm. that's Definitely. also appropriate for that case. Yeah, okay. at the tower we do have... A lot of our hemong patients um, and transplant patients as well. So some of their oncology medications do 
have interactions with some of the antimicrobials, especially the antifungals. Mm -hmm. And these patients do need prophylaxis for fungal infections. So that's definitely a day-to-day collaboration between the team as well, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what medications decrease interactions and sometimes de-escalate depending on the interaction. Perfect. We actually are talking about these topics in our pharmacotherapy class, all the antifungals we just finished, as well as... Banco. So just to clarify, because um I know when we were P2s, we actually went on a little tour that someone gave us in San Francisco and they were talking about HEMOC and we had no idea what yeah. it was. And some of our listeners are like P2s, P1s. <laughs> so if you could just clarify what HEMOC is for our listeners referring to. So yeah. hematology oncology service. Okay, so perfect. these are our cancer patients. Which at Sylvester is what they So exactly at Sylvester they have stem cell transplant and um <clears throat> HEMOC, hematology oncology. So now the hematology oncology service is over at the tower. So we're seeing all these patients specifically at the tower. So it for in terms of ASP, it also has increased work because we we're seeing a lot more antimicrobials. <laughs> yeah. These patients are immunocompromised, of so they course, tend yeah. to be um, more prone to more prone to infections. We need more um, therapy and in, in terms of also prevention. Okay. So um, another question is in terms of the actual interventions or recommendations that you're going to make to the other teams how does the asp team go about recommending them and how is the how do they take it how do the other teams take that recommendation into into consideration well for us it's more about uh, we have daily rounds mm-hmm. uh, in which it's the id physician and the id pharmacist sitting together coming up with a plan regarding each patient and going through microbiological data, radiological data, other labs, and coming up with a plan whether or not the antimicrobials that they're on are appropriate or not, and for suitable escalations or de-escalations, and then proposing that plan or those changes to the respective teams. Most of the times, they do um, follow our recommendations, but there are instances, especially in the critical care units, where a lot of times the critical care or intensivists would disagree with our um, recommendations, especially when it comes to de-escalation in a septic shock patient. Wow. So those are challenges that we usually face, but you can overcome them when you when you actually have a proper sit down and you can discuss with the other yeah face to face. Is there any uh, moment where you just let it I guess slide, or you just let them do what they think is best? A few times, yes, you have to because we are brought on as consultants at right. the end of the day. We're not uh, the primary team, so. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of pharmacy, we do make, at least from my personal experience, we make recommendations. When it's ID, there's a, a much stronger collaboration with that team just because we do round on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. when I may make recommendations, they're very receptive to that. Um, they're open to recommendations. And as a matter of fact, they do seek pharmacy mm-hmm. very, That's very great. often. I think <laughs> on a daily basis, I'll receive a phone call from an attending, a fellow um, or residents and and they'll they'll ask questions and then in in hospital when hospitalists are involved and id is not really involved they're pretty receptive as well to my recommendation so pharmacy does play an important role in that that's really great to hear just because you know you don't it's not always that you hear that pharmacy is perceived or you know um turned to a lot of times so it's probably very site specific and you should be very grateful and that you have that luxury to have such great communication with physicians no i think it's integral to um infectious diseases having mm-hmm. the physicians and pharmacists working together mm. um, you know very closely yeah, yeah. That's one of yeah our goals. I, I think that definitely the closeness the physical closeness is definitely yeah. plays a role because out in the community you know recommendations aren't taken so yeah, into right. heart, yeah. sometimes right. yeah 
So as far as UM and you seeing it on the pharmacy end, especially being the lead pharmacist on the antimicrobial stewardship program, how has the University of Miami increased its resources to battle, for example, resistance? So one of our biggest projects is expanding our ASP program. The more help we get in terms of ASP, the better we're able to target these agents and these patients and cause de-escalations or reduce drug-drug interactions, perhaps get medications discontinued on time. So I think that right now our biggest focus is expanding the program, maybe getting a consult service for full pharmacy consult service. So pharmacy will lead all the will follow vancomycins and aminoglycosides. So right now, I think the university is is the hospital is really focusing on building that ASP program and getting as much help as we can to go ahead and and educate our patients, educate our staff, and kind of increase that awareness. Okay. For in case you guys don't know, Jenny is the one responsible right now for all the infectious disease consults. So it would really help her out on her end to have that other person, you know, spread out the work and get the best outcomes, best recommendations, patient education. Yeah, right. Initially, right now, we do have... So the consult service, the way it works is when the physicians have a vancomycin, it's optional for them to consult us. Some physicians Mm. may not even be aware of that. So we're trying to increase the awareness of there being a consult service. So where I was trained as a resident, I saw that there was a complete hospital pharmacy to dose any aminoglycoside or vancomycin. So... Any type, any order that came through was was pharmacy to dose, mm-hmm. always. It, physicians rarely ever followed. So my hope is to actually have a consult service like that where pharmacy is following. And the reason why I want pharmacy to follow is because we're following up on levels, we're following up on de-escalations mm-hmm. as well, and kind of get discontinuing these medications when we feel like it's not appropriate anymore and keeping yeah. that interaction with the physician as well. So For sure. hopefully you, we'll get that. Do you think that's crazy? Well, I mean, as crazy as it sounds right now, do you think that... Um, the pharmacists that are part of the actual ASP team, those would be like the only pharmacists allowed to bank or dose because they have as much experience. So in- no, actually. No? So Friday, I'm actually meeting with the staff to huddle because we're actually going to have our staff pharmacists. Oh, wow. In, we're we're right. going to have them trained and right. involve them with the kinetics because it's so many consults for myself. Right, right, right. Our ICU pharmacist does a great job at, at following the ICU patients, but all other patients... Um, I follow, so it's it's a lot. We have a, over yeah. 500 beds in our facility, so we're actually incorporating our staff pharmacists, and I'm going to be providing training to them, so they're going to actually be helping us with our consults. That's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what about the process of going through and approving these interventions or monitoring parameters for outcomes? How does that, I guess, start and walk walk, walk us through that process? So recently, for example, we have so we have different order sets we work on, and protocols and policies. And really the order of this is pretty much whatever we feel like is gonna be the best for patient safety and cost Mm -hmm. savings, and also any issues that might come up. For example, we had a fallout in a medication for a septic patient. Mm -hmm. So we've addressed this issue by creating a protocol for patients who had sepsis. Mm -hmm. When we're creating this protocol, we initially work with the ED physicians or the and the ID physicians as well because they start the usually start the antibiotics in the ED and then we trans um, transfer them over to the floor. Right. So the way that we work is with the physicians initially. Then we put the protocol together. We bring this to our steering committee, which is at the tower, and then from there we go to the system wide stewardship subcommittee where we get the approval and any recommendations from the system wide. And mm-hmm. when I say system wide, it's because we include Basca, Sylvester, Perfect. and the tower. Gotcha. And then after that, if the the system antimicrobial stewardship subcommittee is okay with it, then it goes over to PMT and it receives PMT approval. And once it's PMT approved, we have IT build it. 
And then after it gets approved, how do you make sure that the physicians know about the order set? Good question. So we right now, the biggest way to educate or the easiest way to educate our physicians is through emails. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to have that <laughs> sit down and meet with, with physicians. Other, yeah. <laughs> but we do our I try and do my best to educate the fellows, for example, that I work with, the ID fellows. Or when I get a chance to talk to a hospitalist on the phone, I educate them on that. Mm. Um, so, but the biggest way and the easiest way to to educate them and bring awareness to them is through right. through email. So gotcha. we'll send it to the the and the person in charge of the residency program for the medical residents, and we'll ask them to go ahead and disperse it to the hospital staff and medical residents. Perfect. Okay. So our next question is: What are some of the interventions you hope you've seen in other hospitals that you hope to implement in yours? So for me, like I mentioned, it's the consult service right now. That's my biggest my biggest project that okay. I'm working on. Um, when I was a resident, we did have, again, as I said, hospital-wide pharmacy to consult service. So we pretty much followed every single kinetics consult. My goal is to get that over at the tower. So hopefully awesome. to expand. Yeah. We're getting our staff pharmacist incorporated in this. And then once we expand the program, we can hopefully. And, and also maybe providing one-on-one education to all of our patients at right. discharge. Yeah. That would be a great great area to go into as well so. that would be pretty awesome yeah and then as far as we know that there's the joint commission and then there's also cms so what are some differences between those so the joint commission is our accrediting body and we they do actually have required elements the seven core elements that they require in an asp program so every time i sit down with my steering committee and with dr castro who's a lead physician we go ahead and make sure that we're following these seven core requirements mm-hmm. and where in our hospital are we lacking? Right. Um, what are some areas that we need to have um, emphasis on, whether it be monitoring, whether it be providing education, and make sure that we're following these seven mm-hmm. core elements because they do require, um, the Joint Commission does in terms of accreditation, they do look at these core requirements. CMS is more of a recommendation, but they do follow the CDC and IDSA guidelines, which okay. ties into the Joint Commission requirements as okay. well. Okay. And when you guys are going through to making sure that you have all of these things lined up, are the physicians involved you guys need, or is it first within the you guys? So initially, so when I initially started at the tower, we did, uh, I, I went ahead and I created a gap analysis, and we did have physicians okay. in, in our initial meetings. Yes, we do have um, three ID physicians that sit in, three ID attendings that sit in in these meetings, and they are heavily involved with our with our subcommittee and, and, the, um, and the discussions, whether with the gap analysis and anything that goes on. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Um, so then we want to ask, what are the biggest hurdles when it comes to starting an antimicrobial stewardship program? or going ahead and starting these recommendations or interventions? Or even day-to-day, what do you guys see could be improved? So for me, it's the workload. It's a big hospital, and just being the the only pharmacist, I think Mm -hmm. that that's one of the biggest hurdles, trying to allot my time to different areas and kind of like time manage myself. So... I have the, um, the the consult service. We have restricted agents, antimicrobials that we evaluate on a daily basis in addition to attending the multidisciplinary rounds and mm-hmm. also answering any ID questions that come up. So it's a lot. For me, it's, yeah. the biggest, it's the biggest, that's the biggest hurdle. And hopefully once we expand our program, we'll, we'll definitely get some help. But for right now, I think it's just managing my time and trying to get, and I also lead the committee. So I put right. the, the, um, the work together for the committees and any, any kind of background work that needs to be done where I need to communicate with micro or IT. So I think that that's, that's been my biggest hurdle. Okay. Sounds like you work like 9 yeah. to 8 p.m. <laughs> it's so much. Yeah, it's, 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 keeps 12 you, hours. It keeps <laughs> <you>. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So then, speaking of hurdles, something for the listeners who don't know, we just had um, Jen and Mo um, give us a presentation for our antimicrobial stewardship interest group where we kind of briefly touched upon like cultural aspects of antibiotic use and how certain cultures, at least here, um, Miami-Dade, Fort Lauderdale, we think of it usually as being um, a Hispanic thing that they always want antibiotics for everything. That's, that's like their answer to everything. Sure. So we wanted to get your perspective since you guys are from different backgrounds, like what do you think of the cultural aspect of antibiotic use and the right. increase in resistance? So I, I actually grew up in Dubai, and um, in Dubai, it's you, you don't need a prescription for an antibiotic. You walk into a pharmacy, you've got a cold, <laughs> you walk out with Augmentin, or you walk out with a Z-Pack, or Doxycycline, basically whatever you want. So I think in here, at least in the U.S. or North America, we have some sort of antibiotic stewardship, some sort of regulations and stuff like that to mm-hmm. control the spread of um, the misuse of antibiotics and the spread of uh, resistance back in Asia and certain a lot of other countries they don't have such very well developed ASP programs mm-hmm. right um, in fact a lot of the resistant gram negative rods that we're seeing the MDROs the the CREs the VIMs the NDMs are all coming from Asia and and wow. those countries so that kind of proves to that point yeah. yeah, or you or you kind of like shocked when you got here. You're like, wow, everyone's everyone's like, <laughs> not screaming, that bad. screaming about this antibiotic <laughs> resistance. Like, <laughs> no, I think it's a good thing because uh, you know it, it actually it helped me learn as well that when you have a cold it doesn't necessarily mean you right. need antibiotics. Yeah. You, yeah. you just just brave it out. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it reminds me of the CDC campaign: cough, sniffle, sneeze, no antibiotics, please. Oh. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty smart. The CDC yeah. comes up with some great stuff. CDC like, has and some really awesome. good diagrams and yeah. visuals. So what about you, Dr. Raja? What would you say is one of the biggest hurdles on your day-to-day or that you see within the ASP on the physician side? Um, I guess it's going back to what I had said earlier. The biggest challenge for us as an ID physician, it's not so much uh, from the pharmacy standpoint. Actually, the f- with pharmacy is where we come up with a plan together. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how we integrate our, our thought processes, our our management skills and come up with an appropriate uh, antibiotic regimen for the patient, it's more it's more along the lines of passing it to the primary teams, especially when it comes to critically sick patients or septic shock patients. It's convincing their primary providers, their primary uh, teams to be Stop able to de-escalate appropriately or or in some cases escalate right. appropriately if needed. Yeah. or change to alternative regimens in certain cases. and. Right. There are many instances where we face hurdles in that given their knowledge base and our knowledge base, it's right. sometimes we, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't always uh, combine and doesn't yeah. always coalesce and um, they don't always follow recommendations. But um, yeah, those are challenges, I would say. Definitely. And what about the fellows? Do you think that the fellows coming in now mm-hmm. and when the current fellows are mm-hmm. kind of open to the collaboration between other professions, especially pharmacy? Uh as in ID fellows? Is that um, what you're talking I guess about, in or? general, you can speak about ID and then non-ID right. fellows. For ID fellows, absolutely. I mean, yeah. We, yeah, uh, pharmacy <laughs> is part of our, our <laughs> day-to-day rounds and for part of our uh, management for each patient. Uh, in terms of other fellows, again, it goes back to the same thing. Patients that are critically ill, mm. critically sick, especially critical care fellows, it's the same as their critical care attendings. It's convincing them mm-hmm. sometimes of appropriate escalations, appropriate de-escalations, that can be a hurdle or a challenge. Mm. But uh, most of the times, I, I think they're pretty open to it. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, that's good, good to, to hear. Yeah, we're, I'm always texting the fellows. So we're, we have a really good communication. 
That's so good. I'm always, Mo's the, the, the chief fellow, so I'm always texting him, and I'm like, okay, who do I have this week? <laughs> so um, sometimes I don't even need to text him. They'll just text me. So we have a, an awesome relationship in terms of like, hey, we're rounding now, come on up, or hey, can you help me figure out the cervaxo dosing for exactly. patient and renal impairment? So, and I think that communication and that relationship is really important so that they begin absolutely. to trust right. you, they I see agree. another right. side of you. So And it's easier to get those outcomes. Those patient sure. outcomes are definitely right. going to yes. be easier to attain definitely. If, if you have that communication. Because yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about patient care. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Working as a team to get the care. best right. patient care. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to get a little bit on your background. Us two personally have like been following and really interested and passionate for infectious diseases just for a while. But is that the same case for you guys? Were you guys infectious disease lovers forever since way back when? Oh, actually, <laughs> no. So I think Mo has a different story. But um, for me, no, actually not. Uh, when I was in residency, I did not want to specialize in anything because, to be honest, there was no area that I felt would really capture my attention as a resident. Uh-huh. I did have a very strong ID um, component to my residency because my my critical care rotation did require daily ID rounds. Okay. And the ID physician was actually pretty, um, he, he was nice and he was helpful and he, he enjoyed the way that I evaluated the patients. And so when I graduated my residency, I was offered a position at the tower at the, the University of Miami. I was a student, and I actually received a phone call from my preceptor wow. who remembered me as a student and called me and said, we're we're reaching out to our, our previous students to see if they're interested in, in jobs. And so it, it pretty much fell on my lap, to be honest. <laughs> I At first, I remember calling her, and I was like, I don't think I'm qualified for this. <laughs> I, I don't have much training in this. And so... I, and she told me, no, you know, come on board. We're, we're going to offer you the position. And, I mean, it's been excellent. I've, I've developed a passion for it. I I love the people I work with. Mm-hmm. And it just pretty much fell on my lap. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that as a student I knew I wanted to go into. It just mm-hmm. pretty much just, it happened. So yeah. for those of you who do not know what you're mm-hmm. doing or where you're going and yeah. you don't feel like you're 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 sure about what you want to specialize in, it's okay. I I think that even finishing my residency, I wasn't even sure where I was going. And so this kind of just fell into place. Everything kind of fell into place. So that that worked out. That kind of goes to show, like, if you show good attitude and good work ethic, you know, you've gotten this far, you've learned this much, you can really continue teaching yourself what you're missing. But if you don't have that perspective, that good attitude, it's going to be really difficult for someone to want to work with you. Yeah, I was going to say that it probably showed within your work ethic, they saw something in you that, you know, they could train you or they could inspire you, but you had it in you to pursue it and finish it and go through with it. So that's why they probably reached out. So that's kind of what I tell my students when I have them on rotation, you're on, you're constantly being interviewed, Mm -hmm. you're constantly being watched. And when you're on rotations, if that's the, that's the best advice I can give you, I think, always keep in mind that you are being watched and if you especially pharmacy it's such a small yes. world <laughs> i cannot explain to you what a small world pharmacy is everywhere <laughs> you go you will know someone for sure and i i mean i went 4 hours away i went to orlando <laughs> and sure enough i ended up having my resident right now was a technician in orlando when i was a resident there wow. and now he's my resident <laughs> and then my previous resident was actually the technician that trained me when i was an intern in cds no, she yeah, ended up being my resident. <laughs> and we just interviewed for a residency program. And several of the, the, the students that we interviewed were technicians who recognized me from Florida Hospital when I was a resident there. Oh. So it's just such a small world. Yeah, and yeah. whenever you go out on rotations, especially if you want to stay in Miami, mm-hmm. and even if you don't want to stay in Miami, but if people you are looking to stay in Miami, people 
people know each other. Pharmacy is a very small world. And I learned that as a student, and I cannot emphasize that <laughs> now that I'm out in the real world and I've been out of pharmacy for a while. It's out of pharmacy school. So it's just everyone knows everyone. So just be very, very aware of that when you're mm -hmm. out in rotations because you are constantly being watched. And right, I'm a perfect I, example of that. I, I did not go looking for the position that I got. I'm very blessed to have it. Mm -hmm. But my preceptor did reach out to me from my, my work during my rotation with mm -hmm. them. And, and they did reach out to me. So always make sure that you, you act professional. And I agree with what you were saying that attitude is, is, is a very important mm -hmm. component. You could teach someone how to be a clinician. Right. I don't think you could teach someone how to change their attitude. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just advice that I give my residents and I give my students. And going through interview processes now with residents, I think that that's the best advice I can give you. Personality to me is key. I, I think that knowledge will come yeah. and you will learn because you can teach people, but you really can't change personality yeah. so just be humble as Definitely. well just always be aware that you can learn from a technician just as much as you can learn from from a pharmacist and i think that that will take you take you far awesome. Thank what you. about dr raja uh well my story is a little different <laughs> i've all actually i've been interested in id for a long time i but i think at least 10 years or more because it all started back in med school and this is kind of funny I, I remember back in med school, House MD was a big part. Uh, it was <laughs> big on the air. And I used to watch that a lot, and he would come up with all these cool, interesting consults <laughs> and diagnoses and his differentials. And it turns out House MD actually had a degree or a specialty in infectious diseases, and that <laughs> I think sparked my That's first yeah. right. That actually sparked my first interest in ID. But not only that, um, in my final year of med school, one of my first mentors was actually an ID physician. Wow. and I was so inspired by him he and so motivated by him. He was he's this amazing clinician, physician, mentor who loved to teach students, interns, residents, his, his personality, his ethics, his etiquette, his professionalism, and the way he approached um, each case and um, the way he broke down differentials and his management. It was just... I, he was an all-rounder, and I just wanted to be like him. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do ID. I guess that was when I first decided, hey, you know what? I'm actually going to go into internal medicine. And not only that, I'm actually going to pursue infectious diseases. Right? Mm -hmm. And what about advice to students that you would give other medical students? Um, I guess I would say, you know, keep your options open. There's You don't always have to specialize in something. Keep your options open. There's nothing wrong. And... Just follow your heart, whatever you're interested in. If you're interested in ID, absolutely follow. If you're interested in cardiology, hematology, oncology, whatever you guys are interested, always you always want to do what your heart wants to do. Remember, sure. at the end of the day, it's not about how much money you make mm, or no. how big your name is, or it's all about what you are interested in. Okay, that's good yeah. advice. Yeah. 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 And then also mentor mentorship is something we always discuss, and I find. Um, to me and my personal story too, finding that mentor and having someone to look up to is a huge part of, you know, how we grow and where we get to and how we find our, sometimes it's how you find your passions, just like in your case. And not only that, actually now I'm interested in, in pursuing a subspecialty in immunocompromised transplant because nice. being at Jackson, I've been exposed to so many of those transplant cases uh -huh. and immunosuppressed cases, that's actually further stoked my interest right yeah. and i'm actually going to be doing a third year in that 
I'm actually also interested in um, infectious disease and transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those two topics are like very interesting, especially when Absolutely. you combine them together. Absolutely. So, it's a different realm. It's a different world. Yeah. Uh, that patient population, the type of infections you see, you don't <laughs> always see them in, in the general host. And it also limits your use of some some choices of therapy. Yes, so, it right? does. It makes it complicated. Yes, yes yeah. it does. It's a, but it's complicated, but I would say fun. It's like a puzzle. <laughs> once you get, once yeah. you get the hang yeah. of it. Speaking Look of you, fun. <laughs> real life house now. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of real fun and real life house, we know you guys have an interesting story to tell us oh. about a day in the life of an infectious disease pharmacist and physician. Right. So um, it, a regular day usually works as a fellow will come to the hospital. He'll have a list of patients. He'll go through all his patients. He'll see his patients. He'll he'll meet with the attending at a certain hour and then the, the ID pharmacist and maybe an ID resident sometimes will join along and they'll talk about all the patients on their list and they'll go through all their antibiotic regimens, all their microbiological data, their cultures, their imaging, and then they'll come up with a plan of, you know, changing antibiotics, stopping antibiotics, continuing antibiotics, uh, putting in uh, end dates for each antibiotics, and stuff like that. So an interesting case, this is an example of an <laughs> interesting uh, day in the life of, uh, of, of ID physician, ID pharmacist, was about a month ago, we had um, a very interesting case. ID was consulted for a patient with ultramental status and fever. So this is a case of a uh, 67-year-old female who had recently returned from a trip for, to Europe, and she came in with... Um, confusion, ultramental status, and, and high rate fevers, and she was brought to the hospital for uh, further management. She had to be um, intubated and placed on pressors, and she was in shock, um, and they thought they saw um, some patchy opacities in the bases of her lungs on a chest x-ray, and as things go, because patients febrile, you know, ER and critical care doctors a lot of times, I'm not trying to blame anyone here, but <laughs> first instinct is to start broad-spectrum antibiotics. Right. And they usually go for the biggest of the biggest. So for them, the easiest thing is vancomycin and piptazo mm-hmm. or piperacillin tazobactanzosin because it's an easy choice. It covers most of your common pathogens. Right. Um, later on, they consulted ID to see if they had any of the recommendations. ID came on board, they reviewed everything, they realized all her cultures are negative, there's no bacteria that's been isolated, mm. her chest x-rays have cleared, and there was no signs of an active bacterial infection. So the first thing that they recommended was, hey, let's stop these antibiotics because we don't need them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? You're doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. They also noted patient had anemia, thrombocytopenia, increased uh, liver enzymes, and this, the fact that they came from the Mediterranean, Europe, right. um, it prompted them to, and, and pers- the patient was persistently febrile, so it prompted them to search for other uh, etiologies. And w- one of the things that they recommended was to do a, they call pathology and asked them to do a smear, thin and thick smear on a CBC. And that's where they noted that the patient actually had uh, malaria in their blood. Right. And so the fact that the patient's altered, she's intubated, these are not good signs. So they, so this is where the multidisciplinary approach comes into play. So <laughs> ID calls microbiology. Microbiology lab then runs uh, smears to check the level of parasitemia. Turns out that she had around 90, 95% parasitemia, which is super high. No wonder she's obtunded and, mm-hmm. and 
intubated. And, and parasitemia is referring to the level of parasites, the percentage of parasites in your blood. So she had ninety five percent parasites. So that is extremely crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And this is what we classify as a cerebral malaria, which is a very very severe, one of the most severe cases of malaria. And this requires treatment with a medication that will be effective. Mm-hmm. So that's where you call in pharmacy. Ta-da. Uh, <laughs> that's where Jennifer's role comes into play. So you call in Jenny to see if she has IV quinidine. And searching for IV quinidine is its own story. Do you want to take over? Ca- sure. Calling yes. Jenny from down the block. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny from the Jenny block. To the <laughs> so, yeah. So we had to call around the different hospitals to see if they had IV quinidine because the CDC will not approve IV or testinate. Unless we have, we check to see if we have IV quinidine. And RV, IVR testinate is like the recommended if you have a severe... Right, but it's not, right, it's okay. not FDA approved. It's more of a study drug, so oh, you have to okay. obtain it specifically from the CDC. But it's it's pretty much like a, a miracle drug. So the person who created this actually won a Nobel Peace Prize for it. So that's wow. interesting. Yeah. So we, IV quinidine can be used, but it was off... It, Came off the market, I believe, in December of 2017. We still have some stock, but it expires in March of 2019. Um, and the CDC required for us to call nearby hospitals um, to see if they had it. So, so our the, buyer... The nearby hospitals might have had it. Right. But you're a specific... We didn't have, it, didn't have so it. So my buyer's on his way home. He's on the train. <laughs> he's calling nearby hospitals. We're communicating with pharmacists from the VA, from Sylvester, from Jackson, Mount Sinai Memorial... Everywhere. We're calling everywhere. Nobody has it. So <laughs> I call the CDC. I'm on the phone with the CDC trying to make sure the patient meets criteria for the IVR testing. She calls me back, the, the representative from the CDC, and she's like, okay, so the patient definitely meets criteria. You need a 5% parasitemia. The patient's at 90%, 95%. I think she, qual- I yeah. think she meets criteria. <laughs> she might need it, yeah. <laughs> so we, um, she calls me back shortly after, and she's like, okay, so how soon can you get to Miami International Airport? And I'm like, well, I'm on my way. So, <laughs> so I pick up my best friend who's the ICU pharmacist, actually. So we're collaborating um, at, in this case. And I tell her, let's let's go. So we're on our way to Miami International Airport. I have the CDC representatives texting me, you know, so stand crazy. in the corner, bring your badge. You have to confirm <laughs> you're a UMH employee. Oh God, top <laughs> so I need to see your ID. Um, and so it was very interesting. We're on our way to pick up the medication. We were able to to provide the medication, long story short, safely to the patient. We did um, end up having to stay later, but um, some of the fellows stayed with us. Mo was there that, that night and some of the other fellows that were on the case. And so we were able to go ahead and reconstitute the medication, administer it, provide education to our staff, and safely get the medication administered um, to the patient. It was a total of four doses. Mm-hmm. And then from after the first dose, I believe the parasitemia went down from like 90 95% to 25%. Wow. And then after all doses, she was like at an... 0.04% parasitemia nice. and then the patient did survive That's she did awesome wake up from, from her coma and I mean her renal she does have some some renal function uh-huh. con- um, issues she is on replacement therapy but overall it the patient that. did did survive so right. um, that's just I mean that's a little bit more on the exciting side <laughs> yeah. you don't see this every day but right. it's just a, so I thought it was like a fun example and this actually happened Right around the time that you guys had reached out to me and I kept thinking, I was like, this is so cool. I have to let them know about this case because they're going to love it. And so when we came in today and spoke to the the, the students, we, we were able to talk about this case. So I thought it was an interesting case, but it's just an example of our, our day-to-day collaboration. And, and did you guys know from the beginning how to handle a malaria case or is this like now your moment where you're like, now you definitely know how to handle this? Like, so, well, I, in terms again, of pharmacy... Moving forward, I yeah. get any worse. <laughs> so moving I actually forward, didn't I know... You know. <laughs> I didn't know that they had a malaria um, quarantine station in Miami. Oh. 
right. so I forgot to. So we do have a malaria quarantine station in Miami at the airport, which is why I went to the airport to pick it up. Mm-hmm. In the past, we thought it would have to be flown in from Georgia, but oh, we okay. actually have a quarantine station here that actually does have IV or testing. So we were able to obtain it from from them. So no, to answer your question, I did not know. I, literally, the the fellow comes up to me and is like, "Hey, we need this medication, or we have a malaria case." And I'm like, "Okay, there's a malaria hotline," and then we went from there. The CDC right. did an amazing job in communicating with us. And and she was, you know, she was from the CDC and she, you know, the representative would text me, call me. She followed up with me. So they did an amazing job. But no, to answer your question, I had never dealt with this as a pharmacist. I think I think physicians do. Uh, well, for me, I've had a few malaria cases, but not this severe. Not right. where I've had to use artesanate. I've never wow. done that before. That was the first time. Yeah, the, the attending that was with us, he's... He has a lot of experience in different parts of the world, and and he's like, I've never in my experience seen a case like no this. Way. Right. Wow. So I thought that was very very interesting. Unfortunate what happened to the husband, but fortunate that we were able to save for sure um, this patient of ours. And and that goes to life. show too that you know we might not always have the answers, but there is definitely resources and that mm-hmm. we can contact. Like she said, a hotline. The CDC is always a great resource, and um, one way or another, working in a team will find the best answer and regimen for the patient. For sure. Going back to the quinidine thing, so since it's going to be expired, what happens now? Right. Yeah, that's so great. So what becomes first So line? we have quinine, and um, that's PO quinine is what we were we were using for this patient. So that is actually a very good question. The C, So malaria now, the, um, the government is aware of this issue, mm-hmm. and now that we're not having IV quinidine, they're actually trying to get it Back on the market. Are they like forcing the manufacturer? They are trying to get it back on the market. It's funny you ask that because I actually read an article on it last week. Yeah, I got an email on it. So, so we're not sure in terms of the therapy where we're going, but I do know IV antihistamine is very promising agent. So, um, I'm not sure if maybe IV quinidine is going to come back, but we did have quinine, PO quinine, which we did use for this patient as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, they have a couple of weeks to figure it out. Yeah. Hopefully, we have an alternative. Well, that pretty much sums it up. Thank you so much to both of you. you, I'm sure everyone listening is really thankful, and it was a unique episode to have both a pharmacist and a physician here today, and we're super thankful. Yeah, thank you you guys for having us. Of course, thank you. Yes. Okay, well, stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. On this week's infectious news, we have a good report which states that the number of hospital-acquired infections at U.S. hospitals has continued to decline between 2014 and 2017, according to the Agency for Healthcare and Research and Quality, also known as AHRQ. So they found that hospital-acquired infections have fallen by about 13% during this time period, and it has saved about 20,500 lives and $7.7 billion in healthcare costs. I'm sure they have been trying to get these numbers down now for a while. I'm pretty sure they've been implementing things in order to um, for hospital infections or hospital-acquired infections to, you know, come down. Definitely. And it's not like we're seeing a major breakthrough, um, like suddenly everything dropping 20% year by year. But it is something that we're seeing a good incremental change, um, one of the editors said. What else did the article find? So the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services uh, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they have been focusing on reducing these hospital-acquired conditions like we were discussing since about 2011. So overall, we're really glad to see that this is, um, you know, that we're meeting our goal and these infections are declining. 
Well, that's it for this week's episode of Think ID. Until next time, bug, bug you next, next week. week.